0: Pursuit of Podcast, a purely guest-centric show focusing on people and organizations that advance positive change. Positivity can be anywhere, and in a time of vast discord, the pursuit of is finding those who champion its causes loudest. Join us as we sit and learn about the pursuits of local leaders in their community.
1: Let's go. Hello, good people, and welcome to The Pursuit of Podcast, where it's truly not us, it's you. My name is Ryan Buck, artist development, New Learned Media. With me, as always, is the boss, Mark Wilson, New Leonard Media. How are you, sir? <laughs>
0: I'm doing great. You know, I just got new ink for the printer, Did you and really? it, yeah, that it's is like enough so-
1: of that. Our guest today is Dave Mengabir, President and CEO, Grant Travers Community Foundation. How are you?
2: Great, Ryan. Thanks. Did Mark? I use
1: the the long version of the name or community foundation? What's preferable?
2: We sort of shorthand it most of the time. But when I took the job, the board made sure I understood this is the Grand Traverse Regional Community Foundation. You're representing five counties, not Traverse City. So yeah, but shorthand, community foundation.
1: Well, speaking of shorthand, so for those unaware, what does the community foundation do?
2: Well, we do a lot of different things, but the main thing is working with donors to help them accomplish their philanthropic goals. So whether you care about the environment or education, youth and family programs, arts and culture, social welfare and health, then we work with donors to help them direct their philanthropic dollars to the nonprofits in our five-county region to have impact, to actually improve the lives of the people that live, work, and play here. And kind of an amazing story, year one, Rob Collier was the president CEO of the community foundation. And last year we were approaching our 30th anniversary. He showed me a one page sheet about first year results. So we had $800,000 in gifts and commitments. And I asked Rob, I said, well, so that was not money in the door, right? That was pledges and gifts. And he goes, correct. And we made three grants as a community foundation. So that was way before my time. So at the end of last year, we finished with Over $100 million in assets and awarded over 800 grants to nonprofits and scholarships to students, and to the tune of $3.5 million. And the thing about community foundations that's unique is that most of our assets are in doubt, meaning we take all of the gifts we receive, we invest them on behalf of our donors. And then we grant out a relatively small percentage of the overall market value of the portfolio. But we do that this year, next year, and every year thereafter. So the thing that always gives me a little bit of a chill is long after Mark and Ryan and Dave are gone, then the causes and the organizations and the people that we care about will continue to receive those grants to support that important work. Wow.
0: Real sustainability, yeah. You know.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's really, literally, we're in the forever business.
1: That's a theme that comes up on the show frequently, is having a meaningful impact and legacy, for lack of a better word. But for you, this is how you're spending your retirement. <laughs>
2: right, right. Yeah, I was at Consumers Energy, and for the last 17 years, I was Senior Vice President for Governmental, Regulatory, and Public Affairs. So I was one of eight as part of the senior management team there. And I worked for five CEOs when I was at Consumers Energy. And I told the last one, I said, I want to leave in time to go back to Northern Michigan, because I came from Petoskey, and take all of the professional development, all the experience... All the training that I was blessed to receive, and give back to the community. I always thought it was sort of sad that executives, kind of at the height of their powers, when they're most experienced and most skills, decide to go off and play golf or go to the beach. And so I was right. like, this position opened up. It was like total serendipity—the wow. perfect platform to kind of bring you know my experience and my skills. And doing it in the place I love. So here's what's funny. I don't usually tell this joke, but I'll just I'll just mm-hmm. say it. So people ask me, Are you from Traverse City? Everybody asks you that, right? Like, mm-hmm. And I think the implication is, Are you from downstate? Are you from Cleveland? Are you one of us? <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. Are you native? Right. Which Petoskey's has other. He's close enough. Yeah, no. So what I say is, Well, I'm, I'm from Northern Michigan. And then I think to myself, but if there's sort of a hierarchy, the more north you get, the better, then I've got one up on all the Traverse City people. <laughs> no, so, that, that's wow. not necessarily true. Well, right. I mean, I mean right. because
0: whenever I say that my neighbors are from New Jersey, people say, well, whereabouts in New Jersey? I don't know. But I can tell you they're Phillies and Eagle fans. And people from out east know exactly where in New Jersey they are from. So here, it's like, well, where in Michigan are they from? Well, I know they're Green Bay Packers fans. Like, oh... Interesting. They're from above right, the bridge,
2: right, right? Exactly above the yeah. bridge, or <laughs> in southwestern Michigan, they're Chicago Cubs fans, not Detroit yeah. Tigers fans. Yes, right. Right. Same, yeah, same idea.
1: Well, that's a tough road, no matter what. And I'm from Chicago, and being a Cubs fan for a long time was a hard thing yeah. to be. Right, paid
2: your until, <laughs> but
1: until, yeah. yeah. But you, I think what's fascinating about what brought you to this are the aspects of your years at Consumers Energy with your title knowing that you had to do with charitable giving, community affairs, community relations, sustainability, in a big, bad corporation. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's fascinating for people to know. They get jaded and to know you were able to do that with
2: consumers. It's interesting when I think back in my career and one of my main responsibilities was trying to influence public policy on energy and the environment. But I have to say... Some of the biggest battles I had were internally. And I don't want to imply that the senior management team at Consumers Energy and CMS Energy, the parent, were anything but fantastic. Actually, I have to say, that was one of the great things about working at the company is the CEOs and my peers in the senior management team got along very well. They understood what their roles were and how they could be supportive of one another. As they say, we weren't working dependently. We weren't working independently. We were working interdependently. So it was a fantastic team, but there was a lot of trying to bring the rest of the management team and the company along to really focus on things like sustainability, for example. So I spoke to a class at University of Michigan at School of Environment and Sustainability a couple years ago, and they were asking me how do you effectuate change in a Fortune 300 company, right? And I said, where CMS Energy, the parent, and Consumers Energy finally came around was there were foreign investors that wanted to purchase CMS Energy stock. But they said, we're not going to own your stock until less than 25% of your fuel mix for your power plants is non-fossil fuels. We want to see wind. We want to see renewables solar energy. We want to see more of energy efficiency and energy optimization programs. So that was interesting how, to some extent, I can't take credit for kind of the path that Consumers Energy went down. Now, if you look at the company today, I would say they're considered to be one of the most progressive, clean energy, sustainable companies in the sector. So did I have something to do with that? Yeah, maybe. But It's interesting what other factors go into play with the board of directors of a company like that and the senior team.
0: I was thinking that when you were talking, because you had said intergovernmental affairs is what was part of your role. Right. Yeah. And so how that works when you're also like in an organization so large that it's got its own internal politics consistently at play.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, that's true with any large organization. When I came back From Washington, D.C. I was promoted to the senior vice president position. Then I started sitting in on the senior management meetings and most of the discussion was around the business and finances. And I said, I'll be darned if I'm going to spend the next, as it turned out, 17 years not being able to participate in that part of the conversation. So I went back to the University of Michigan in 2004 and got my MBA from the Ross School of Business. And it was really a fantastic catalyst for my career after that. And I can't even remember exactly where I was going with that point of view other than it continued to sort of expose me to a lot of other perspectives among my classmates, among faculty, among the administration. One of the things that I saw was how interestingly bureaucratic major institutions of higher education are, right? So in the case of the University of Michigan, you have the administration, right? The board, the president, and the VPs, and then you also have the faculty. There's actually sort of two power centers in a university. So talk about trying to get things done in that kind of an environment. Actually, I sort of felt pretty good about it, uh, about our company after having that experience.
1: You have a BA in economics, political science, and public administration from MSU. You mentioned the MBA from the University of Michigan. Now, I'm not from here, and I'm not a big sports person, but I know that's a conflict, right? That's not supposed to happen.
2: Right. Undergrad at Michigan State, graduate degree at University of Michigan. You know what I always say is, I cheer for the University of Michigan in every game but 3 the two <laughs> basketball games and the football game and you got to cheer for your undergraduate okay. school i mean it is after right to, yeah right and we lived in Ann Arbor for 16 years my girls grew up there so they became huge university of michigan fans right. and we went to a lot of the university of michigan games we could walk to the stadium from our house and we'd go there when they were playing the Non-conference teams that were not very good, or you know basement dwellers in the Big Ten conference, and yeah. try to pay as low a price for the ticket as we possibly could. Sometimes people would even give us the tickets, they'd see me there with my young girls. and we sat all over the stadium, and it's such an amazing. I mean Michigan State University Stadium's cool, yeah. but there's nothing like the big house. you walk in there and you just go, "Whoa. It's It's something I never
1: realized how intimidating that's supposed to sound like prison, the big house. I didn't think about that. Well, that's interesting.
2: I'd never put those two together. Yeah, you're coming to
1: prison of loss or something. But you also have a JD from Thomas M. Cooley Law School. You spent some time in academia. You seem obviously very passionate about what you're doing. But what were your most valuable takeaways from your time? In school, and would you have traded any of those years for professional
2: experience? It's so interesting, and you guys know this you never know what direction your life and your career is going to take. I think when I finished my undergraduate degree at Michigan State, I wasn't burned out on school, and I had a social science degree, and I was an okay student, but I wasn't a great student. I was like, you know what? If I want to live in the manner which I've grown accustomed, I better get busy here and get. Serious. So that's one of the motivations why I went to law school. But here's the other thing that drew me to law school. I went to Washington, D.C. when I was at Michigan State and did an internship there. And a lot of the meetings I sat in. This was uh, at the
1: U.S. House of Representatives, correct? Yeah,
2: right. Well, this is before. This is when I was still just an undergraduate at State. I was actually, ironically, worked uh, in the intern office at DTE Energy, the other Mm -hmm. big utility in Michigan. (laughs) So I saw people sitting there talking about public policy issues and political issues and the lawyers, just the reasoning process that they had, how they could kind of break down the issues, identify really what are the sort of the turning points in a particular argument and how to best articulate your position. And so it wasn't so much that I was enamored with law. I wanted to learn that sort of reasoning skill and those skills of logic and argument.
1: It's a good foundational skill. Yeah. Makes sense to be inspired that way.
2: Yeah. And as far as the other experience, I mean, when I was at Michigan State this past weekend, I was there with my wife, Kelly, and we were like feeling almost a little melancholy because those four years that were at State were some of the best years we ever had. <laughs> I mean, yeah. How much fun was yeah. that, right? And four years is a lot longer back then, too. Right. You know. Right. Yeah. So. Well,
1: your father was a pathologist and a medical director, your mother was a county commissioner and an active volunteer. The age-old story, were you pressured into going into medicine? Did you have to kind of skirt a path that was being laid for you? No, that's a really
2: interesting question. But no, I it's, think...
1: It's like a stereotype, you know, yeah, leaning I, into that. Right. But.
2: Yeah, I think that the biggest influence my parents had on me was this sense that we have an obligation to give back. And if we're blessed to live comfortably, then we really, as a human being, have an obligation to reach out and help people that are less fortunate. And I think they kind of drove that lesson into us. So I think they wanted us to pursue careers that were challenging, that we enjoyed. I say to our staff and all the people that used to work for me, we spend so much time at work, we might as well do something that we really enjoy, right? and life's short. So really, it's worth it to pursue your passion. And I see that a lot in philanthropy. The people that are really committed to supporting the nonprofits or the students in our region are people that were brought up that way and were taught by their parents and grandparents. It's really important to help people that need our help.
1: That's interesting because as an idea of this as a profession? At a certain point in your life, you realized it could be, but at a certain point in your life, was it something that was even an idea? And how can we get young people into the idea of this? Because this isn't the path to getting that Mercedes S class right away, right? Right. In general. So for you, what inspired you? And two, what would you say to somebody younger looking towards this early on?
2: Well, I saw my parents doing it. My dad wasn't just a pathologist and a medical director, and my mom wasn't just an Emmett County commissioner. I mean, they were actively involved in the community in the Petoskey, Harbor Springs area, so really modeling the way. So I think that's one way. If you're a parent, sometimes you don't even think your kids are paying any attention, or you say something to them, and you don't think they hear you, and then months maybe later, they come back and say, I remember when you told me this. So you really can't underestimate how parents and other mentors, it doesn't necessarily have to be a parent, can really model the way for the younger generations. We have such a cool program at the Community Foundation. So when we were created 30 years ago, then one of the large gifts we received was from the Kellogg Foundation to create a youth endowment. So what that does is we have a high school students in each of our five counties and they're called Youth Advisory Councils. And yeah. each year, yeah, yeah right? Absolutely. I was never kind of crazy about the, that <laughs> acronym. <laughs> right. You're yeah. foregoing
1: my even asking if there's marketing or behind that, so I get, yeah, we'll get right. that out of the way. Right, right, okay.
2: right, right. But so these kids, so this year, each of those Youth Advisory Councils will be able to grant $18,000 to nonprofits in their county focused on youth and family programs. And so if you sit in one of these sessions where the nonprofits in that counter come in and basically pitch the kids, right? Yeah. So there's 20 high school students sitting around the table <laughs> and they're listening to presentation after presentation from these nonprofits. It really does instill a sense about, well, wow, this is a big responsibility. Yeah. Like we have these resources that could make a huge impact on these organizations and the people that they serve. But the other interesting thing about it is to watch how they have to figure out how to reach a consensus about which nonprofits to support and how much money to give them. And so that is another tremendous development skill. I don't know who the Kellogg Foundation came up with it. This is a program, by the way, that community foundations have, I think, almost universally across the state. And I think it's brilliant. So literally is helping high school students learn about introducing them to and learn about philanthropy. So this year, our Yakers, there's 70 of them across our five-county region. And as I said, they're going to be granting out $91,000. So they're really having impact. And I think that's just really cool. It's really
1: compelling. And the website, which is gtrcf.org, correct? There's a really compelling video on this program and to see these young people getting that satisfaction and they comment on being able to help allocate this money and the enormity of that which i think is amazing but you talked about antiquity a little bit you talked about 30 years so this puts the formation somewhere in the early 90s correct which was a different time and admittedly a different level of social awareness in general In the 90s so you could say it was very forward thinking of those who put this together even then to start thinking about this but can you comment at all on if as an organization you look backwards to
2: learn or does it not make sense and do you just look forward just one point you just made ryan which i think is so important is the people that founded this foundation 30 years ago many of whom are still here in the Traverse City area, I don't know that they really could have imagined what they were creating and what it would look like three decades later and the impact that the Community Foundation can have. So the lesson, my takeaway from that is, when you're thinking about doing something and you don't exactly know how it's going to turn out, but it's a good idea, then it's worth testing and it's worth trying and it's worth pursuing. Isn't that kind of part of the title of this podcast? I thought so, yeah. Because you never know how it's going to work out. And my own experience in my life and my career has been, I've tried a lot of things, and invariably, they worked out better than I thought. So I think this legacy that the founders of the Community Foundation here in our region had is unbelievable. And I think If you went and asked them, did you imagine 30 years later you were going to have the kind of impact that you're having? I think they would say, wow, that's surprising.
1: There may be one in the group's like, yeah.
2: Yeah, I knew. I vision boarded this. (laughs) I scrapbooked it. (laughs) I saw this. Got my Ouija board out. It said it was going to be successful. Exactly.
1: (laughs) It all pointed to yes. But when you look at the main priorities of the organization, community development, diversity, equity, and inclusion- early childhood education and youth philanthropy, I'd like to first ask about the community development piece because you look at that and it can be kind of an amorphous concept. Right. Community development. It's talked about a lot. So what does it mean to you specifically?
2: So what happened is I kept having this deja vu experience when I first arrived. People would come into the foundation and they say to us, would you consider supporting this program or this initiative or this project, and we'd say, well, did you know so and so is already working on that? Oh, I didn't know that. And it's not as simple as that, but I think what it told us is that while there's many examples of collaborative work that happens in our community here writ large, there are also more examples of people working in silos. The nonprofit sector, not talking to government, not talking to the private sector, And how can we, interested in working on same or similar issues, put our resources and including our intellectual resources together to actually effectuate change and optimize resources and have even larger collective impact? So the other experience I had is, I think the 8th Street Corridor is sort of a perfect example. There's this huge article in the Record Eagle a couple years ago about all of the studies that have been done on 8th Street. So I would ask people, what about 8th Street? And they'd say, Dave, we've been talking about that for 20 years, right? (laughs) So the question that begs is, well, how come these issues are not getting solved? Now, some of them are, but a lot of these systemic issues. You look back at the Grand Vision or Traverse City 2020, which was developed in the 90s, and what were the issues that were identified back then? The same issues we're grappling with today lack of affordable housing, not enough affordable transportation, not access to quality childcare, not very good results on early childhood education, which these are four year olds entering kindergarten. And do they have the early literacy, ready to learn social networking skills they need to be successful in kindergarten and beyond, right? So the question is, well, how come these things are not getting solved? So our th- theory was, when we created this community development strategies, that decision making authority is too decentralized here. And so we have over a thousand nonprofits in Grand Traverse County alone. We don't have any really big companies that in a lot of other areas have their deep pockets and the resources to actually move the needle. And then we have many, many local units of government, not all of whom have the capacity, and I'm not referring to the Travis City City (laughs) Commission now, to actually address these really difficult long-term issues. So what we did is we created this coalition of, which is now 38 nonprofit government and business organizations. So think Munson Healthcare, NMC, Intermediate School District. Haggerty, even small businesses like Rare Bird, is one of our coalition members, wow. and reached in a consensus on a set of thirteen economic, societal, think housing, community mobility, early childhood, and environmental issues. Think green infrastructure, water quality, etc. And so we've been working on that now for a couple of years. We have some wins. We're making some progress on some of these issues. These are longstanding. Really difficult issues, so the idea is to put the collective heft of this coalition behind a lot of really good work and try to help move it forward, move it the sports right. analogy down the field
1: right well, and it sounds like one could say the problems were kicked down the field, you're looking to do the same thing in a more positive trajectory, yeah,
2: this is uh not kicking them down the field this is running them down the field. Running into into the the end zone. zone.
1: We can do sports stuff too. You guys do that. It doesn't come up a lot and and we need help there. What I think is really unique within the framework of community development that you focus on is the idea of shared accountability. And I think that sounds potentially very tricky. Is that a difficult balance to achieve in a community like ours and to
2: reach understanding even of what both sides are
1: in this arena?
2: Well, so we put these objectives on a scorecard, which uses a sustainability framework, economic, societal, environmental. And one of the reasons we use that framework is there's a lot of interrelationships between economic development, societal, and environmental issues, right? And then we score ourselves. If we're going backwards on one of our objectives, we're red. If we're not making any progress, yellow. If we are making progress, then we're green, right? And I haven't really experienced any pushback from our coalition partners holding ourselves accountable for these things. You can't do everything, though. So we decided we were going to zero in on youth mental health, housing, and early childhood education, and access to quality childcare. So we are making some progress. So by the way, I want to be clear. The coalition, the Community Foundation, is not taking sole credit for any of this stuff. What we are doing mm-hmm. is trying to support other people and add the collective weight of a community behind it. Great example is last year, Leonard County Commission was considering zeroing out their early childhood education millage, which supported quality childcare in that county. And not all the coalition members weighed in on a letter to the Leonard County Commission, but Probably a dozen of the largest, most influential organizations in our area did. And we just added our decibels to the voice of other people saying, what are you doing? They ended up not doing that. So another great example is this housing development up on Lafreniere Road. So it's a combination of affordable and workforce housing that the Traverse City Housing Commission is working on with Beta's new headquarters and transfer station. So this is a perfect combination because it's a little bit outside of town but they have immediate access to public transportation so they have affordable transport to get to their jobs. So the coalition weighed in on that that was our voice was part of many voices supporting the 6 million dollar appropriation that the housing project recently received. And it was really critical because Beta has received all the funding for its project But Garfield Township was saying, we're not going to allow Beta to move forward with construction on their headquarters or transfer station until we know the housing piece is going to get built. So it turned out well. So those are just a couple examples about how the coalition is sort of putting its collective weight behind some of these things. I like
1: just adding additional decibels to the collective voice, and it can be successful doing it this way, because I think a lot of people can get very cynical about this and think, oh, this is just free love, flowers in the air. And it's not that. It's people coming together for a common purpose, but doing work, doing actual work. What would something about your day-to-day that would surprise somebody? Just the day-to-day, not the flash, not the glitz, the glamour, doing fantastic, fancy podcasts.
2: Yeah, What's something (laughs) that
1: people would be surprised about that you have to deal (laughs) with?
2: I don't know if this is much of a surprise, but when people ask me, Like, what do I like about my job? I say, the people that I meet and get to work with. So, you think about the type of people that I work with, we work with. They love Northern Michigan. They've had super interesting careers in many cases, and they want to give back to their community. So, just think about that combination of character traits or values, right? So, you meet the most awesome people. I spend a lot of time meeting with community leaders. I'm also a northern navigator for Traverse Connect, so we're trying to attract and retain talent here in our region. And we do that by having navigators meet with people considering moving here, and they have all kinds of questions. What's the best hiking trail? What's your favorite restaurant? What are the schools like? Who might you introduce me to in my particular field? That's
1: great. It's a real person. Yeah. It's a real, yeah. Real answers. Yeah. Not the canned answers. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So that's really the best. I said the other thing is love our staff. And one of the things that was super surprises to me is it looks pretty seamless on the outside, right? Donors send in a check and we send them a gift acknowledgement letter and a tax receipt. And then we invest the money, and then we just grant it out, and it's no never mind. Well, there's a (laughs) lot of work goes on behind the scenes here. Oversimplification. Yeah, uh... (laughs) there's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes. So we have 9.4 staff. Joanne Hughes has been with us going on 22 years. Paul, our VP for finance, 21. Allison Mativa, our Chief Operating Officer, 17, and our VP for program Steve Wade. He's been with us over 10 years and then we have some junior staff that some have not been there quite as long so it's a fantastic combo right we have sort of the millennial gen xers and then we have some very seasoned staff so the seasoned staff they have all the institutional memory they're very good at running things and the younger staff brings new ideas new energy but As a whole, I think the team is absolutely fantastic. And when I hear feedback from donors, from community leaders, from our nonprofit partners all the time saying, you guys are really great to work with. And that's what brings me joy, honestly, is going to work and working with these great people. And I hesitate almost to say we have a great board because that sounds like apple polishing or pandering, right? (laughs) But uh, we have a great board too. Well, I've heard the same. So you
1: know, I'll second that. When... You're looking at the sum total of the impact that you get to make every day, and you think about the different aspects of leadership that you bring. Was there something about this role that stretched you as a leader? And was there something that you brought to this role that you know was uniquely you and you would just kick butt?
2: One of the things that was just interesting was when I was at Consumers Energy. Then at one time I had 125 employees and a $26 million operating budget, Okay, yeah, not bad, not bad. Right, so when I arrived, there were five staff and we had about a half a million dollar operating budget. The other thing that was kind of surprising to me was I was the president of the Consumers Energy Foundation. That was one of the hats I wore. And so we were granting out from that foundation about $10 million a year I went to my first grant-making committee and grant-making committee had like, They were talking about, we have $8,000 here that we can approve this round, so should it be $500 or $1,000? That was a real eye-opener to me, because it was just sort of an order of magnitude a lot smaller than what I was used to. And I mean, that's actually, I would just say, one of the big challenges that this community foundation has is, unlike Rotary Charities, which we partner with literally every day, we don't have a lot of discretionary grant dollars that we can direct towards what we see as gaps in the community. And that's also really important in this community development work. If we need resources and we're asking other people to contribute, we need to make sure we have our own um, contribution. So that's been a challenge. It's something that we've been working on is trying to raise more undesignated or unrestricted gifts coming to the community foundation so we can direct it where we think it's most needed. And that's been a bit of a stretch. I mean, I'm not. What I found out is fundraising is a, both an art and a science, right? There's a lot more to it than just going up to Ryan or Mark and saying, hey, would you guys mind cutting me a check? And particularly if it's an unrestricted gift. In other words, the donor is totally delegating the decision-making to our board and our staff. And they always want to know, well, what are you going to do with the money, right? But we have a good answer for that now. With this community development strategy, we're going to use it to support green infrastructure projects and improve water quality and better housing for our workforce and increase community mobility, making our communities more walkable and bikeable or increase ridership for public transportation. So we have a good answer to that, but that's been sort of a surprise and sort of a stretch for me. You know, as I said earlier, I feel so blessed because the company invested a lot in me in strategic planning, leadership development and training, strategic planning. Consumers Energy, I think one of the reasons it's one of the top five utilities in the country is they don't just do strategic planning once a year. They do it all the time. And so all of those skills I sort of was able to bring to this job. And that's led to things like the Community Development Coalition, the Scorecard, some of the other work that we're doing.
1: That's fantastic.
2: When you are
1: in a role, you're in an organization that interacts with the public and affects the public and benefits the public, but you have to do things like this and and field questions about the business and money. And it all sounds very seamless when you talk about it, but is there kind of a stigma about like, we shouldn't talk about money You shouldn't talk about business, although it's the core of what you do. Is that something that you have to navigate at all?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of the whole development and fundraising process. So when you're talking to a donor, I think donors, first and foremost, want to work with somebody they trust. And to develop that relationship, you have to work with them over a period of time. You just can't go up to Mark Wilson and ask them to the hundred thousand dollar check. I've right? tried. It's yeah, it's not, it just it's hard. Work, I mean, right? yeah, even after your long relationship. Yeah. So this is a nine year process. Yeah, it's a hard question. It's, yeah. Make. So, but on the other hand, you have to ask. If you believe in the cause, you know that you're going to use those resources in a way that's really going to have impact. Then that really makes it a little bit easier. And as long as you're able to articulate, what is our mission? which is improving the quality of life for the communities and the people that we serve, right? And yeah, so it can be uncomfortable, but money stuff, the community foundation is actually a great deal. You know, sometimes people say, well, explain to me the community foundation, right? And one way I explain it is this. So let's say Ryan wants to set up his own Ryan Family Foundation, right? And you care about something like the environment, right? To do that, you have to apply to the IRS for a 501c3 an annual license from the state of Michigan. You have to have a board of directors. You have to do an annual audit, da, 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 da. So instead of doing that, you set up the Ryan Fund at the Community Foundation, and we are your foundation. And we take care of all of that stuff. We just make it easy. Sounds better. Yeah, and you know what? Donors, they don't want to have to, in a lot of cases, deal with all the administrative stuff, which is what we take care of. What they're interested in is philanthropy, community impact, giving back to nonprofit partners or supporting scholarships or students. Right. So we just make it make it easy for right. people. Right.
1: Well, we talked about where you've come from and the individuals in 1992 who would probably and hopefully be still amazed and in awe of what it's become now. Not to put you on the spot, but are you talking about what could be around the corner? Because now I think the power of prognostication and agility is probably our most valuable skill. So are you talking about that, and what do you see
2: that may be on your list? Yeah. Well, something that we've been working on now for a couple of years that I'm super excited about is impact investing. So what that means is, we take a small percentage of our endowed portfolio, in this case, $2 million, And instead of investing on Wall Street, we're going to invest it on Main Street, right here in our five-county service area. So we're going to earn some kind of a return on our investments, but we're not looking to maximize a return. We're looking to maximize impact. So one area of our region that foundations can't have as much impact on is the small business community. And if you have a vibrant small business community that has all kinds of benefits, not just economically, but societally and environmentally. And so what we're doing is we've so far invested a million dollars with two, what they call, not to get too technical, community development financial institutions, Venture North and Northern Initiatives. And they've committed to deploying the capital that we've loaned them here in our five county area using the guidelines, the objectives in our community development scorecard. So again, think childcare, housing, et cetera. And so we're making low cost capital available to small business and some nonprofits in our five county region, which uh, compounds the impact we're having with our grant making. So I think that is gonna be, that's something that a lot of foundations are looking at. Rotary charities sort of set the trend on that here in our community and was incredibly helpful in helping us get started there. But I'm excited about that. And I think that I get frustrated sometimes because even though we're granting out over $3 million a year, right, there is so much need out there. Sometimes I feel like we're spreading it like peanut butter, right? So the question is, well, how can we have even more impact? So this idea of carving this out and having some financial return, but also having a social impact, by making low-cost financing available to these small businesses and nonprofits, I think it's going to be really key. And so just to give you an example, some nonprofits have applied for a federal or state grant, but in order to actually get the money in the door, they have to finish whatever capital project that they're committed to working on. So what do they do in the interim? Through our partners at Venture North and Northern Initiatives, they can provide these organizations with bridge loans 12 to 18 months, and then once the grant dollars come in, then they can pay that back. And so that's just one example of how this impact investing strategy is going to be put to work.
1: We talked about having to bring the business aspect into this, but I think it's important for people to know these things have to happen, and you are very transparent. In June, you launched a project dashboard, correct, that enables individuals to see what progress has been made on certain projects?
2: Yep, yep. And people can go on the webpage. It's NWMI, as in Northwest Michigan Community and they can click on the menu and they can go and look at the scorecard and the dashboard and see. And by the way, I do distinguish between a scorecard, we're keeping score, mm-hmm. as opposed to a dashboard, which is just reporting indices. Right. Just reflecting on your last question, though, here are two other things that at the Community Foundation we're looking really hard at. So one is the impacts of climate change, and I, for one, having come from a sector that was heavily involved in this, particularly, I think, aware of the increased severity and frequency of storms, wildfires, droughts, other climate impacts over the long term, and Climate change is a super challenging issue Mm -hmm. because the costs of actually reducing carbon emissions and making your communities more resilient are immediate, and the benefits are much longer term. So that imbalance between the costs and the benefits on climate is one thing that is really hard to overcome. But I would say from a philanthropy's perspective, supporting nonprofits, supporting communities, and helping us address climate change, reduce our carbon emissions, make our communities more climate resilient is gonna be really key.
1: It's difficult, but not insurmountable.
2: No, I think the key is, what can we do here locally to have impact? We're not gonna solve global climate change, but we can have an impact here. The other is diversity, equity, and inclusion. So we created a DEI fund at the Community Foundation. So far, it's granted out $58,000 to nonprofits, black, indigenous, people of color-led, LGBTQ+. We define DEI very broadly, organizations with disabilities, supporting people that are on the neurodiverse spectrum, aging, people from lower socioeconomic levels that are really suffering. We say there's two Northern Michigans here, So I think that has to be a big focus for the Community Foundation and for our region as a whole. And whether you agree with that or not, I think there is really a compelling argument economically, because we are heavily dependent on the hospitality and service industry in our region. And really, I think the key to long-term economic strength is diversifying our economy by attracting more STEM, tech, IT-related professionals here but to do that we have to create a culture that everybody feels welcome no matter how they identify what race ethnicity they're part of and i think that's going to be challenging too some people if you haven't had that lived experience you really don't have a sense for why that's an issue but i hear from as i'm doing my northern navigator gig what's your culture like is it welcoming and i'd say generally speaking Northern Michigan is very welcoming, but has not had a lot of experience. We have a pretty homogeneous population here, right? I don't know what it is, 98% white. So we've had a few incidents over the last few years which show that there's still some work, yeah, to, be some done work to be done there. Yeah. And
1: a very almost transient population in a way when you have this thrust in the summer, you have folks who live here seasonally, but you're still doing things that everybody can hopefully get behind whether you live here six months of the year, you live here year-round, and listeners can support the organization. And I think this is really interesting. And maybe it's psychological, maybe it's marketing, but when you go to the website, which is gtrcf.org, on the right, among the list of things you can look at, the first thing is give. And I think that's interesting because that was the first thing I was inclined to click on. So, But um, how can listeners support?
2: I'll just give you a great example. So when the pandemic broke out, then a couple weeks after March 2020, we created an urgent needs fund. And the reason we were compelled to do that is the nonprofits, particularly those serving basic needs, think food, clothing, emergency transportation, counseling services, their fundraising was cut off overnight. And at the same time, the demand for their services was skyrocketing as unemployment was going up, right? So over a period of about 18 months, we raised and granted out $1 million, which shows the generosity of our community. And the thing that was most gratifying to us and to me was that 40% of the gifts that came into the Urgent Needs Fund were from first-time givers to the Community Foundation, and in smaller amounts, 50, 100, 200 dollars. We received some very large gifts, but I think what that demonstrated to me is that one, we have an incredibly generous community here, and two, that uh, people are looking for opportunities, even in a relatively small way, depending on, on what they can do themselves, to actually give back to the community. So we welcome gifts of any size. We put it all to work. We take our stewardship responsibilities very, very seriously. We want to make sure that every dollar that we grant out in the form of grants or scholarships has an impact in our community. And as people learn more about the Community Foundation and its work, we're seeing we're growing and people are giving. And I find that really gratifying. You were quoted in a Trevor City Business News
1: article, and I think it's a wonderful quote and it's in my experience, people are truly committed to the notion that giving is better than receiving. And I feel like just talking to you, I do feel that you exude that. and is that something that still guides you
2: that still keeps you inspired? There's no question about that. I think that donors want to support a nonprofit organizations. They want to support students. But there is a very much a satisfying feeling when you're taking some of your resources and you're putting it to work on behalf of these really fantastic nonprofits and students in our community. And I I think people, it gives them a really good feeling. And seeing how that makes you feel so
1: good at a young age, you hope they hunger for it. But finally, to wrap up, I have maybe an easy question for you. What's the best hoppy beer to go with a good cigar?
2: I always go with Two-Hearted, Bell's Two-Hearted, and if there's not Two-Hearted, then I have to go with Shorts, Huma. I think those are... I mean, that is such a great thing, right? You don't have to leave the boundaries, state lines, of the state of Michigan to have two of the best IPAs in the whole world.
0: (laughs) You know, it's funny that you bring that up, too, because offline before the recording i don't know when this will drop so i'll leave the dates out but dave told me that he and his wife are in a little weight loss competition and
2: that okay the thanksgiving challenge
1: oh there you go but the (laughs) so those hoppy beers are an enemy of this challenge
2: that's the first thing he said he said well two-hearted
0: kind of
1: well there's a light version of it that yeah i'm not i'm not as
2: uh yeah i'm not as (laughs) uh, what is that called uh light-hearted yeah, yeah I'm, I'm okay not, yeah i, no, no, I, I agree no, i'm not, not a fan i'm not but a fan I'm, you know what now i you know how it is it's like the seed has been planted and it's growing in my brain right and now i really want to go and have one of those oh but i'm surprised you didn't ask me this so my last name mengebir you guys know what that means in german No. <laughs> it means lots of beer <laughs> The interesting thing about that is, so were you the we, most
1: popular person in college? All yeah, of them? right, right.
2: So we figured that we either um, were in our generations in Germany were either brewers or heavy drinkers, right? right. Yeah, they don't so anyway, to be mutually exclusive. I never liked that last name. I really wanted to have a name like Smith, right? Right. You know, oh. you got to the Ms in the first like, day of like school. Bunker, Wilson.
1: Yeah, right. as pedestrian as it gets. And I had a rough time right. coming up too. Right. But it gives you stories. It's what defines you. Yeah. The website, again, is gtrcf.org, correct? Correct. And again, all the information that we talked about, there's some great videos on the website. And it's very compelling. And honestly, Dave, it just takes a few moments to look at what you're doing. And you are really, really hooked. So it's amazing to be able to talk to you. And thank you so much for your pursuits. And to all those who pursue along with you, working to make our communities better, more fulfilling places to live, work, and play, it was awesome to have you with us. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much.
1: Our pleasure. And to all of you who are listening, thank you so much for listening, and thank you for pursuing the positive. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us for another episode on the Pursuit of Podcast, the pursuit of Grand Traverse Regional Community Foundation. For more information and to get involved, visit www.gtrcf.org. And as always, for all things audio, video, podcast production, check us out at newleonard.com.